Uh, my 19-year-old daughter likes to use the phrase, I'm shook. When she uses it, she's using it not to describe necessarily something only physical, but something much bigger than that. Often it's the metaphysical or the existential or some situational aspect of life. She, she might say, I'm shook, when we're watching a movie and there's this, some sort of surprising twist or shocking detail that's revealed. She does it when she hears some news of a befallen uh, fr- uh, superstar or a friend who has suffered or a classmate who's died. She says, I'm shook. And she means it to the core. In the fall of 1775, a terrible earthquake hit Lisbon, Portugal. Its magnitude was 8.4, and the effects of the earthquake were terrible. Tens of thousands were killed. The city was left in ruins. The economy was devastated. But the earthquake didn't just shake the physical realm of Portugal. It actually shook all of Europe. The cultural consciousness of the day was shaken. When we are shook, we lose certainty, we lose our bearing, our sure footing, our thinking becomes buffeted and cloudy. I was in an earthquake once. It was in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I was actually, I think I was there for Together for the Gospel Conference. I was up early to catch a flight, and I was finishing packing my suitcase, and things started to shake, and it oddly, like, felt like a strong gust of wind, something that we're used to, something I'm used to living in the foothills of Albuquerque. So I immediately, like, it was weird. I was inside, and I felt this. And so immediately I looked outside the window, and the trees weren't moving. And my mind, like, quickly tried to piece together, like, what was happening. And I realized in that moment that it was a quake, and and then it was over. A few things had fallen off buildings. As I went to the airport, we saw some you know, sirens. Nothing major happened. I, I, I went to the airport, and as I was checking my bags, weirdly that, day, that morning I met uh, Kelly Pickler, like the old American Idol contestant who had a short-lived country c- career. But the whole day was this weird, surreal thing, right? Now, to cope with the Lisbon earthquake, the shook people began to accuse each other. Catholics blamed the earthquake on the sins of the Portuguese. And the Portuguese blamed uh, the the earthquake on Catholicism, saying that's what did them in. God had had enough of their unrighteousness. The, The philosopher Rousseau blamed the architects and the city planners. And some of the citizens of Lisbon just shrugged their shoulders. And a popular saying emerged... What is, what is, is right. Meaning that God had ordained the earthquake and people needed to accept it and move on. It was an ancient version of, it is what it is, bro. In the age of COVID, both during and post, there have been no shortages of being shook. Now, some of this is certainly physical. There has been loss. Death is closer than some of us remember And now we're living in this inflation, the difficulty of finding cars and homes. The the last two classes of high school graduates are, according to statistics, suffering mental anguish at alarming numbers. We still have things closing early, lacking employees. We have been shook, not just physically, but also psychologically. And what have we done to cope? 
What have we done to deal? Well, we've resorted to control. And part of that mechanism is blame and denial. We have no shortage of such things. Ways to be unshook. To somehow grab hold of these like philosophical guardrails, handles. And the easiest and quickest handrail, like those in the aftershocks of the Lisbon earthquake, are blame and denial. Whether it's blaming the libs or the conservatives, the governor, the mayor, the president, the employer, the employee, the neighbor who posts everything on the neighborhood app. Everything. The family member who doesn't see things the way you do. We are buffeted. So we buffer ourselves to withstand the onslaught. All of us are like boxers who have been jolted into the corner. And as blow upon blow rains down, the only response is to cover up and then lash out with blame. Philosopher Charles Taylor talks about this modern phenomenon. In modernity, we re, we've remade the human person into a buffered self, a protected and autonomous independent free person who determines their own good and pursues their own authentic path. We shut out incursions of the divine or demonic to carve out a privatized space so we can be free on our own terms. We love our freedom, so we must be free. The buffered self, an attempt to protect itself from the the buffeting blows of an uncontrollable supernatural world, protects itself through isolation, individuality, and control. We blame and deny because we can't and don't want to let the fear, the pain, the unknown in. When we are shook, we grab hold of anything and everything so we don't have to deal with reality, that we aren't God and that we aren't in control, that we're porous selves, open, vulnerable, And so pandemic and post-pandemic life shakes us to the core. We realize that we're alone. We realize that everyone is crazy. We realize that we are too. And so we have to offload our anxiety, our fear, our panic. And we do it in the same way those who were shook in 1755 in Lisbon and across Europe did. We jettison things and people and beliefs and try to buffet our buffered selves. In Hebrews, the Christians of the day are also shook. They are buffeted by a loss, a loss of social capital, of standing in their community. They are suffering under the weight of, uh, in the marketplace of commerce and in the marketplace of ideas. They are tempted in that moment to shrink back, like cellophane under a, 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 a flame. It shrivels up. The writer of Hebrews says, don't shrink back. But that is what they are tempted to do. The heat of their moment is causing them to shrivel. They're being held captive to the winds of angel worship. They're denying the need and the habit of gathering together for worship. They are thinking about returning to the old traditions of Judaism. So they will be accepted in this public space instead of rejected. They're blaming God. They're blaming one another. They are shook. And they are looking for anything to grasp hold of 
so the shaking might stop. And so the author of this letter reminds them that they come from a long line of shook and buffeted people. Just as they are being shook now, so too were their forefathers. They were shook at Mount Sinai, where a holy, a complete other type of God met them in the desert. Heaven came down and sat on a mountain. And because God was holy other, they couldn't touch that mountain. Why? Because if they touched it, they might just die. Their very world shook, and in the process, so did their hearts. Moses went up to the mountain, and even he said, I I tremble with fear at the sight. Have you ever been shook by what you saw? Forbidding forecast of weather or statistical data, the white face of your child, the tears of a spouse, an accident that happened in your purview, or even something you couldn't explain, and you couldn't believe that you were witnessing it. The people of Israel camped around a mountain, and God manifested himself with smoke and lightning, and the mountain shook. Imagine your eyes seeing that. But also imagine that in seeing the shaking, they can't see the form. Like, like they can't see what makes the horror horrifying. Have you ever been in a movie or a situation, a horror situation, where you saw something but you didn't see the actual evil force or killer, just the hearing and the sensing? God was a God not seen in a form, and this increased their shaking. And then there was the sound. The writer of Hebrews describes the sound as terrible, Have you ever been shook by a sound? We have dogs and every guest to visit our home is welcomed with their alarm. Every dang time. And every time it shakes me. There was a thunder and a roaring sound. Like the children in Narnia being shook by the roar of Aslan, the deep and ferocious roar that said, Aslan is not safe. They were shook. Israel lived here at the foot of the mountain, and when they were shook, they attempted to find handles. When Moses disappeared on the top of that mountain day after day after day, it appeared he wasn't coming back. I mean, who can blame them? He did enter a shaking, roaring, smoke-filled mountain. So they made a calf of gold and had a party, saying, in essence, let's stop being afraid of this God we can't control, and at least let's distract ourselves about him and instead create one we can control and one we can see. Let's party and forget our cares for a spell. The Hebrews here in the letter are doing something similar. They're shrinking back because of a loss of income and a loss of cultural cachet. Their current world is loss, and their temptation is not to endure this discipline of the Lord, but to find handles to try to stop the shaking. We can stop being maligned if we just practice some aspects of our old faith. Like if we just go back to the temple, practice some sacrifice, get our sons circumcised, We can stop being shook. We can stop being shook if we just stop meeting in public as Christians. 
We can stop the constant whispers if we can just be kind of low-key Jewish. Handles. Control to stop the shaking. This was the same thing their forefathers and mothers did. The preacher then says, there's one problem with this. You are shook. That seems true. That seems to be the truest thing. But, but, but this mountain, this mountain is not your mountain. The shook city, that isn't your city. This is what the preacher does throughout the book. He compares in contrast old ways and new ways, ways of the law and ways of grace, old priest and new priest, old temples and new temples, the old sacrifice and the one sacrifice. And here, the old mountain of Sinai and the new one of Zion. You have come to Mount Zion, the the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Innumerable angels parting the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. You are shook. You think shaking is your birthright. And to deal with that, you do what you do. You, You grab hold of handrails of your own making and you attempt to keep your buffered soul from being buffeted anymore. You assume the pose. But this isn't you. Your story's been rewritten. You belong to a different city and a different kingdom. Notice he says that this future hope is their current hope. It isn't just later for the Hebrews. In some sense, it's now. Now in the the place of their shaking, in the shaking city that is undone by their, their existential earthquakes of malignment and persecution, the answer from the preacher isn't latch hold of power and try to regain your influence. Hear this. The answer the preacher gives when they are shaken isn't gain back cultural power and regain local positions you lost. Instead, he attributes this loss they are experiencing to the Lord. Saying earlier in chapter 12, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And then says in the midst of the shaking, remember, you are someone else and you are somewhere else. Your life is in the new Jerusalem. Now, St. Augustine riffs on this. He says, The city is said to have come down out of heaven because the grace by which God made it is heavenly. And it has been coming down from heaven from its beginning since its citizens grow in number continually to the end of the present age by which the grace of God that comes down from above through the new birth of baptism with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. In other words... We participate in heaven now. At every new birth of baptism, the Holy Spirit is sent down from heaven. We we stand, in other words, in both places. The the shook city of pandemic and politics, in the shook city of malignment for our faith, maybe even persecution, the the shook city of constant conflict, the, the shook city that even traumatizes us and leaves us shaking. The shook city where everything seems uncertain, where life seems so fragile. Here it feels like we are just buffered selves, and we have to cover up. As the blows rain down and buffet us like a Conor McGregor roundhouse. But you're not in the city. You are present in another one, even as this one shakes And you stand in a city 
that the writer of Hebrews says has no foundations. Like real ones. Like this city has earthquake-proof foundations that go all the way down. This is your true city in the midst of the shook one. And in this city is the firstborn from the dead. Now, here the preacher is referring to the church. The hero of the faith and the unknowns of the fight, they are the assembly of the firstborn. They are the ones enrolled in heaven. Their names are written down. In other words, you aren't alone. They aren't aren't alone. They are known and their names can't be revoked. Like in the unshook mountain, what these saints are experiencing is what we are and will experience. Your name is known. Your tears are kept in a bottle. They, who, they are people who also suffered. They who the preacher says the world is not worthy. They who had faith even in the midst of great, the greatest disappointments. They are enrolled. And they are both cheering you on, Hebrews 12.1. And they are where you actually are. What if you knew your inheritance was great and it couldn't be taken away? What would happen if your bank was shook today, but the money was coming? You see, lots of pain in the Hebrew church is loss of capital and influence within their local community. There's also pain of death. But here the preacher says, those shook realities are old mountain living. But you are on the new mountain where God is the judge. And not like the Sinai judge, but a judge in the business of making perfect or rectifying what's gone wrong. And on this mountain, there are angels dressed to do their work, to bring messages to and fro, to heaven and back again. To offer worship on earth as it is in heaven. To bring worship as it is on heaven here on earth. And the resurrected one, it says, the one that was shook on the cross all the way down to the catechismic place of the grave. And when he went down to the grave, he gave the grave the shakedown. This same Jesus entered into the most holy place, like the priest would do on the most awesome day of the year, the day of the atonement. The the high priest would enter with a rope around his waist in case he might be struck down. The high priest would apply the the blood of bulls and goats onto the throne and the altar of God. And the horrible question of that day is, will he come out? Will we be forgiven? Or will we shake in terror at the holiness of this God? Jesus is the true high priest, the once for all high priest who went into the shook place and his blood covers our blood-stained hands and our quaking hearts. Abel's blood is crying out for vengeance. The the shook world of the vengeful and those who need avenging. Is there anything more shook than that than being a victim? Doing something we regret. The victim and the perpetrator need the blood of vengeance. They need atonement that covers both. The blamers and the deniers, the right and the left, the accused and the accusing. Here the pastor says, good news, you've come to him. And his blood is enough to provide vengeance and forgiveness. And because you've come to him, you can come to God. Even if this God is a consuming fire. You see, in the shook places, everything you have 
everything you are, your accomplishments, your charming disposition, your intellect, your connections, your sin, your anxieties, your shame, your very self, it's all burned up by the righteousness of God. For our God is a consuming fire. And through this, we are disrupted by this God. And everything that needs the shakedown gets shook. And yet when the flames have subdued in the soft glow of the embers, one thing remains. It's God's promise. It's the only thing that's not turned to ash. It's indestructible. If there's any doubt in your mind, Isaiah 54 explicitly says, For the mountains may depart, and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace, it shall not be removed, said the Lord, who has compassion on you. You see, God's promise is stronger than our accomplishments. It's stronger than our sin. It's stronger than you, and it's stronger than death. You have come to the God who rectifies it all by his Son. He makes it right through his Son. And right now, yes, right now, you stand in both places, the shook city and the secure one. We stand on two mountains, the quaking and the rock solid. And out on the horizon is the reality that more shaking will come. The preacher says, God will shake the heavens and the earth. There is judgment, the discipline of the Lord. But the shaking for those who are in Christ is purifying. So what remains is no longer the shakable, but only the unshakable. You see, even the judgment, the discipline, is so that the shakable is undone, so that the shakable is undone by the unshakable, so that all that's left is unshakable. In our grasping for handles of control, that's what we're after. We don't want to be shook by pandemics, by policies, by political winds and words, by injustices, by the fear of loss, by death. We don't want to be shook by our sin, our deaths, by the powers of sin and death. In the now, we occupy both the shakable and the unshakable, but we will inherit the unshakable. And here, the king, the president, congress, governors, mayors, illnesses, loneliness, isolation, death... And here will all be rendered powerless. Therefore, that's the preacher's pattern, right? The therefore, because of this Jesus, because he has walked where we walked and suffered for it, because his sufferings, even to the point of death, didn't shake him forever. We have an unshakable hope. Our truest city is an unshakable one. So the response, the application, is first the call of faith. See to it that you do not refuse this one who is speaking. Even if the one who is speaking will bring more seeming shaking. It's a call to faith in his goodness. Reminding that the aim of such shaking is to reveal what is unshakable. And what does it look like to listen and not to refuse? My son, Deacon, loves Scooby-Doo. And I think listening to and not refusing the one who is speaking looks like Scooby, 
jumping into Shaggy's arms. Whenever Scooby is scared, undone by what, by what he sees and hears, Scooby jumps into Shaggy's arms. Why? He knows he's been there and trusts by his very presence, Shaggy will hold him up and will keep him from totally being overcome by the shaking. In one sense, they, they shake together and that undoes it. Faith looks like that. Shaken, we jump into the arms of the one who was shaken. He was shaken. Scooby jumps into his arms. He, he knows he's been there and trusts his very presence. Shaggy will hold him up, will keep him from being overcome by the shaking. In one sense, they shake together, and that undoes it. Faith looks like that. Shaken, we jump into the one who was shaken for us, so we might be held, made unshakable. So what has you shaking and quaking? What has you backed into the corner? What's buffeting you? Like, we, we don't want to be shook. We don't want to be shook by people leaving our churches. We, we don't want to be shook by conflict in our churches, by criticism of us, by whispers about us. We don't want to be shook by our own failures, which we know very well. We, we don't want to be shook by the things that are happening in our home, arguments with our spouses, sickness, children who struggle as adults. We, we don't want to be shook by the mundane parts of life. You don't want to be shook for your desires for a family or for sins to be gone or for more money or opportunity or to stop being so constrained by things. You want to be shook by your routine. You don't want to be shook by the fear that you're going to be found out. All of this makes us groan. And here the writer of Hebrews reminds us that groaning is faith. This groaning and its faith, grumbling isn't faith. Grumbling is blame and denial. Grumbling is searching for handles of control. Groaning is placing what is shaking you into the realm of the unshakable one. Groaning is teeth rattling faith. David Bennett, the Anglican priest and writer, says, We are surrounded by reminders of human failure. Please don't let that drown out the reality of Christ's unfailing love and your loving response to it. You are secure. You are fought for. You matter. You are anchored in a steadfast faithfulness that will not falter even in your worst. We groan, groping for real security. And second, add to that faith, that groaning, teeth-rattling faith, that jumping into the arms of the unshakable one faith, add to that grateful hearts that overflow with acceptable worship. The writer of Hebrews says, awe and reverence and gratitude. He couples all those things together. This is our way through a world full of fright. We, we, we gather we worship, we surround ourselves in the shook world with others who experience it the same shaking in different ways and yet are clinging to the unshook one together. I'm part of a pastor's cohort. Um, last week, we gathered together in Savannah. And part of what we did in this week together is held on to one another in our shaken world. Don't miss this, because 
our world has us shaking. In some ways, our world has stolen things from us or is trying to. And we need to meet together and worship together and gather around tables together. However it can be done with an eye toward neighbor love. We need to see our God, the consuming fire and judge, who is rectifying a world to set it aright. And third, the writer of Hebrews says hope. Hope tends to undermine blame and denial. The two ways we grab for handrails. Hope says the solution rests outside of us. We need rescue. We need rectification. Suffering and hope go hand in hand. And in hope, we hold tightly to the apparent paradox that all is not well and yet all will be well. In the aftermath of the great Lisbon earthquake, other floods and pandemics, it is the only solid ground on which we can stand. The Christian hope is something to which you can cling to with all your might because it's none other than the presence of God clinging to you. Christian hope undermines the handles of the shaking blame game because it reorientates us to a person outside of circumstance, to another future, another city, another foundation. It also undermines false optimism because it's a real promise vowed by a faithful God. And in a world that has been shaken, It is our only solid ground. You see, this is where this leads us last to mission. Because our quaking stories meet up with God's unshakable one. And those stories meet up with our neighbors' stories. All the places they are quaking and shaken and are buffeted. And the ways that they protect themselves by buffering their own lives, going into emotional and spiritual lockdown. Such were some of us before we met our unshakable Savior. And even too, we are tempted to shrink back into these same buffered selves, that other story. But the writer of Hebrews reminds us that your story is a place of unshaken redemption of, of the God who enters into ours. And this is where the preacher is taking his congregation. Through the rest of the book, that's where he will go, reminding the congregation of their mission in this world. That's our mission too. May you cling to the unshakable one even as you feel like you're being shaken. And may you remember that you live on a mountain, that even where the shakable things get shaken, so that they will be revealed, uh, so they will reveal the unshakable ones. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us to add uh, faith, hope, and love. That we would live into that. The gathering together as your people, the worship of reverence and awe to a God who shakes us to the core so that all that's left is the unshakable. That that would be the reminder of, uh, that that would be our story. That we serve a, a God who in Christ went down into sin and death, suffered for us, and by his body and blood has covered all our sins, all the things that shake us in fear and anxiety have been met with an unshakable Savior. So I pray this morning, uh, this evening, as we come to the table, that you would remind us in bread and wine of your faithfulness. And that we might hope, continue to hope in this Savior, the unshakable one. We ask all this in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord.
Amen.